Welcome to Let It Roll, the story of how and why rock and roll happened with Ed Ward and Nate Wilcox. We've got an exciting episode for you today. The preliminaries are over, and now we're well into the first flower of rock and roll as we talk with Ed Ward about 1955 and 1956. These are the years when the American Prometheus brought forth Elvis Presley, when Chuck Berry culturally appropriated Western swing for his first hit, and Hollywood shocked the masses with the first rock and roll movies. As always, we'll touch on the non-musical factors that made all this possible, changing demographics and new musical formats, as well as a few outside factors that slowed down but couldn't stop this musical revolution. That's right, we'll be hearing how the Bible printing business crowded rock and roll out of Nashville, We'll be hearing about the white singers whose hit cover versions kept some black artists out of the pop charts, and what happened when the producer who nearly ruined Frank Sinatra put in a big bid for Elvis's contract. Remember, if you want to learn more about the music, read Ed's book, The History of Rock and Roll Part 1, and check out our website, letitrollpodcast.com. So keep those earbuds in your heads and listen up. talking about 1955 and 1956, two very big years in the history of rock and roll. Ed, what happened to the demographics and the culture of this country that allowed outsider music to suddenly become mainstream music? Well, I think mainly it was the thing that, you know, we've been talking about for years, uh, the ripening of the um, children of the post-war era, kids that were born you know, after either late in World War II or after the war, when when men came home from uh, from uh, fighting, they were suddenly getting older. And, and I mean, you know, 1945, the war ends. 1955, these kids are 10 years old, which is a little young, maybe for rock and roll. Although I was eight when I first discovered it, which was a little bit later. Um, so that you know the 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 forces are there to start moving uh, different kinds of of music, music that is more in tune with the um, the I hate to say older young people, but kids who are rejecting older forms of music and things like Mitch Miller and how much is that doggy in the window and uh, certainly laid the groundwork. For yeah. Rejection. Well, and and older forms of black music and older forms of country music. Um, that the, that was just you know country music was was really after a sort of jump uh, in the late forties. It, it had pretty much solidified, uh, it, or what do I want to say? Not solidified, but it had, it had become rigid because Nashville is a very conservative place. The before. Country music turned into a multi-million-dollar business in the early '70s. Um, the two big money-making opportunities in Nashville were insurance and Bible printing. I mean, almost every Bible in the world was printed in Nashville at that time. This is not conducive to innovation or anything, you know, any kind of aesthetic revolution. Um, and so. That, that is what produced Elvis Presley. Uh, it's what produced Carl Perkins. It's what produced Johnny Cash, even. Um, and as far as black kids were concerned, they were rejecting the um, whole sort of blues-based one guy out in front of a combo singing 
a blues that they were getting more into vocal groups and um, more risque, more, I don't know, more realistic lyrics, perhaps. And more guitars. And guitars. Um, although, yeah, that to some extent, it, um, I guess, yeah, in, in blues, that was definitely happening as far as Chicago. That, that stuff was selling. And then Chuck Berry, of course, um, as a guitar player whose style was completely out of, it was out of nowhere. Nobody else was playing like him. Some guitar heads would argue with that, but you could make that claim more clearly for Bo Diddley, who came way out of left field. And he he was pure rhythm. He although he was a good guitar player, he 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 was able to play lead guitar perfectly well. He did so uh, as a studio musician for chess a lot. Um, but yeah, Bo Diddley was definitely yeah. And, and here here was somebody who was like nobody else. Also, his lyrics are so weird. Um, he evokes folklore he 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 has all this um sort of nursery rhyme stuff but he's also got songs like who do you love which is one of the scariest things i've ever heard even to this day or you get somebody like Alan wolf you know who um he's he's doing smokestack lightning which i don't know exactly what he's trying to say although you certainly feel and, and you get the import of it. What is smokestack lightning? I've always assumed it had something to do with big factory smokestacks and, and electrical charges in the steam clouds above the factory, but it, that's That just could my... very well be. I, I've always thought of it as, as a, uh, a thing on a locomotive. That's uh, equally possible. I mean, and the sound of those Howlin' Wolf records, once he hooks up with Hubert Sumlin, it's like a, a revival of blues. Muddy Waters was doing the same thing with Jimmy Rogers and, and Little Walter. These old blues men, I mean, and they're literally old. It's very unusual for musicians yeah. to have this kind of creative renaissance in their 40s like yeah. these guys did. Uh, I think Muddy was younger than that. Well, a, a little. I mean, he's he's his his golden run goes from 47 to what, 77? I mean, yeah, something know. like that. So so he had a, a long run, and he's all through the 50s he's making new original uh, songs and changing his band constantly, and right. so it's it's an amazing accomplishment. But you can also see where it leaves room for a lot of young bloods to come up. And one thing that's interesting, you know, in your chapters on this, is Muddy's role at Chess Records. You know, you cite that he's there when they get the demos from Bo Diddley, and and he's a big part of the Chess Brothers backing Bo Diddley, and much more so with Chuck Berry. I right. Mean, he he discovered Chuck. He, he didn't. Yeah, he did. Uh, Chuck went to him because he knew he was a he was a uh, force in Chicago, and he said, "I want to get a record contract." And and Muddy listened to what he was doing and went, "Well, this is this guy's no threat to what I'm doing, but he is really interesting. I bet these guys will make some money off of him." And they certainly did. And Maybelline comes out of the gate. Chuck originally brings it up there as Ida Red as a cover with some some new lyrics, but it's a three chord wonder. It's a country beat. A Western swing beat, and he makes it his own. And when he changes it to Maybelline and, and adds a narrative story, boom! Alan yeah. Freed gets a hold of it, and this is suddenly big, big business. Yeah, because it sounds like nothing else, and it is something that this emerging audience can listen to and go, "Ooh, that's interesting." You know that that's not my grandmother's music. Yeah, and it, I mean Chuck put his own twist. Uh, you know, incredibly witty writer, got the African-American perspective, so he's got the out- outsider perspective on American life. 
but really knows how to appeal to the mainstream and how to tell a story that kids are going to be fascinated with. Right. And and I'm and I love the cultural appropriation of of an African American taking the white country beats and and bringing it into R and B and creating rock and roll. Right. Right. Yeah. That that's absolutely what happened. Um, he's he's a big part of that that cultural moment. There there are others, but. Um, and they're on the other side too. In country, there's the whole cat culture uh, situation in the South that's producing white kids who love black music, like Elvis, like the whole Sun Records crew that Sam Phillips assembled. Not just Elvis Presley and Scotty Moore, but Carl Perkins and Johnny Cash, like you mentioned. But let's talk about the explosion of Elvis in 1955. I mean, right. they, Sam Phillips and Elvis and Scotty Moore and Bill Black, and they bring in the drummer DJ Fontana, are running at a real creative peak this right. entire year. Yeah, they're, they're picking the right songs. They're not writing any of these songs, interestingly enough, but they're they're sort of <clears throat> pulling them out of the air and and, and recording them in a way that um, nobody else ever has. Well, that's not, that's, I, I should also say Carl Perkins is definitely writing all his own material because he yeah. has a vision that nobody else uh, has had before, and so he's got to write his own material. Yeah, but he comes along a little bit in the wake of Elvis. Now, right. Right now I'm reading uh, Goranek's excellent biography of Sam Phillips, and oh yeah, it really strikes me that, that Sam Phillips is the first person, at least that I'm aware of, that has this vision of integrating music or bringing African-American music to white people as a force for social change and a force for social good. I mean, he sees himself in almost a messianic He's always capacity. He was always like that. He was always like that. He really did have a sort of religious um, appreciation of what he had done. And I think he, he considered himself something of a prophet or, or a, a, a religious figure for having done this. He knew he, he had wreaked a change that was irreversible and was massive on American culture. Yeah, he's a almost an American Prometheus. Yeah, uh, and I still remember the time I saw him uh, on a panel at Memphis State University where he uh, went into full pro prophetic uh, mode and said that the two greatest events in American history were the birth of Jesus and the birth of Elvis. <laughs> I love it. The birth of Jesus is a great moment in American history. Well, but yeah, I Bethlehem, mean, Pennsylvania. And you know? and another thing Sam had going for him was a real technical gift for sound. I mean, he was a gifted. He producer. learned. Yeah, he he learned the stuff in in the uh, in the army, and that was probably his instrument was the studio. He he was the guy who he knew how to tweak this, and yeah, you know, he invented that whole echo, the slapback uh, echo. Yeah, that that you know nobody had had done before, and. To him, it was no big thing. It was just, you know, I was just a little something I was playing around with. But it really creates sort of a almost a mystical aura around the Elvis Sun, Sun Records that it's just and, a very... And the other ones, too. Oh, I mean, yeah. you know, Billy Lee Riley and all that stuff. That he, he, he applied that really forcefully to uh, a lot of those records because I think he thought that that was part of what sold them. I 
think it's true. Yeah, I definitely think it's true. And But this is also a time when Elvis is beginning to outgrow Sun Records. It didn't take long at all. No. He's starting to do tours. He's got his band. At first, Scotty Moore is the manager as well as the guitar player. But then this guy, Bob Neal, comes in. Right, and he's, he's got experience. He's... he's um, He's uh, managed country music stars before. Also, there was an economic um, pressure uh, at Sun because the the, um, the whole thing about pressing records and then distributing them and then paying for returns. He was pressing so many records that he was in huge debt to the uh, to the pressing plants, and he didn't know if he was ever going to see that money back because distributors have ninety days to pay, and and pressing plants want their money in sixty days. So it's a little while till you get caught up there, and maybe you don't. Yeah, and it's a brutal squeeze. And Sam seems to have adopted, you know, the man on the flying trapeze approach of we got another Elvis single coming in the pipeline, guys. You're going to want to pay me for the last one. Then he gets Carl Perkins right on the heels of that. Then he's got Johnny Cash. Then he's got Jerry Lee Lewis. So he, you know, gets a conveyor belt. But then this guy, Colonel Tom Parker, comes sniffing around. Well, yeah, and in a way, that's good because um, he had um, connections with RCA Records. He had been involved with um, uh, Eddie Arnold, Eddie Arnold and, and uh, then with Hank Snow, both of whom were just printing money for RCA. And so, you know, if he came to them and said, I, I got an artist, they listened. And... I mean, RCA was huge. They not only had, you know, a country music division, but but they they had Perry Como, and they had a huge classical division. They were, you know, a major label, as they say. Yeah, and 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 we'll, we're kind of jumping ahead to Elvis fifty six here and the, and the move to RCA. But I want to talk about Elvis's tours, his early tours. He he tours around Tennessee. He plays the Grand Ole Opry to mixed success. Plays the Louisiana Hayride and and Treeport, and seems to have his biggest early live success in Texas. Yeah, there was a, a woman, a, a um, promotion woman, who worked for a really big record distributor in Dallas, and she was the first person to hear Elvis. You know, she oh yeah, this is good, and she went around to you know the various radio stations, and he broke out of Dallas. His the beginning of his national success was success in Dallas, which spread throughout the state of Texas because Dallas was the media center of of Texas at that time, and you know it's sort of like New York, uh, and uh, so they were able to do really profitable tours of the state of Texas all the way out to Lubbock. Um, where where and and they they played here in Austin at the uh, Sportatorium, which later became Armadillo World Headquarters. That's pretty awesome. And yeah, and and he goes around Texas like a sort of Johnny Appleseed. He meets Buddy Holly in Lubbock. He inspires Roy Orbison uh, in the DFW area. Even though Roy's initial reaction, you say, was negative. To yeah, us. he 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 thought he was slovenly and he didn't look good on stage. Could Roy even see? Yeah, I was. I was wondering because yeah, he he was very nearly blind. Well, he probably was wearing his glasses when he saw him because it was very important for him as a performer. Yeah, you know, and as a performer who wound up with his own television show, it was pretty important to uh, pay attention to what's going on on stage. But uh, I, I always liked the story of of. Uh, 
Elvis and Buddy Holly out at the Cotton Club in in uh, Lubbock, where Buddy and Bob, you know, Bob Montgomery, had been working on their country act. But it's really interesting to note that their um, their business card said Western and Bop. See, this is indicative of how young people are approaching country music. Um, their manager, High Pockets Duncan, was a uh, was a DJ on the local country station, but I don't think they listened to the station that much because it was that old Nashville stuff. And um, that wasn't of interest. I think that the bop was more than equal to the Western in their universe. And then they see this guy who is doing what they really wanted to do, but didn't quite know how to do. So Buddy goes over and talks to him because Elvis is sitting with a Coke in the corner at the Cotton Club and nobody's talking to him. And so Buddy goes over and starts talking. Oh, you know, I really like the stuff you're doing. And Elvis, you know, painfully shy when he's off stage, he really appreciated that. So that the next time they came through town, well, the day after the Cotton Club, Elvis plays a, uh, I don't know, a car dealership or something, or a supermarket opening, and Buddy and Bob open for him. And that's the beginning of a, of a great friendship. So that when Elvis comes back, he's, he's riding in a bus, and, and they, Buddy and Bob buzz his bus on the way into Lubbock, and Elvis pulls over and jumps out and goes in their car, and they take him around town, and, you know, really nice. Yeah, it's an awesome story, and it's really fun to think about young Buddy, really young Buddy Holly. Yeah, uh, and and young Elvis, not yet out of high school. Yeah, and cruising around, and and you know later Buddy's going to mentor a young Waylon Jennings, and and it's just fun to think about these guys sparking off each other and and being friends. And, yeah, and, well, it, it was it was a real community in those days, you know, um, something that we see again with the folk revival. You know, it's always important to know who in town is cool, and. There was no media. There was no internet. There was no no other way to make this connection. And if you're in Lubbock, it's a good thing to know. <laughs> yeah, really. Well, I mean, yeah, because Buddy, when he wound up recording, he had to he had to go to Clovis, New Mexico, to do it. And and I've I've driven that. It's it's a pretty substantial drive. Yeah, I two, mean, three hours. Yeah, if you're a West Texan with a car, you're used to driving that far to find anything interesting. But it still is a hike. Yeah, you know, it's, it's not something you you just drop downtown and do. Yeah, and so we've talked about Elvis, we've talked about Stone, we talked a little bit about Chess. We haven't talked about Atlantic Records, which is having Laverne Baker that they've been nurturing for a while finally breaks through with uh, Tweedledee, and immediately Georgia Gibbs does a pop cover right? and steals the thunder. And s- sinks the record as far as being on the pop chart. She maintained her, her place on, on the R&B charts, but, you know, as with country music, that's not a lot of records uh, it's a minority market. There's less money available. And, um, you know, it, it was, this was something that I think in some ways it's been overplayed because there is a hint of racism in it. It was not so much racism as, as it was just capitalism. Um, you hear a good song, you want to record it. Uh, it. It went the other way. There were black covers of white pop tunes. Um which sold, I guess, to the rhythm and blues audience. But um, everybody jumps on this, and rightfully so, because there was the power to destroy a career that way. 
And um, Laverne Baker certainly saw that. Uh, Ruth Brown saw it. I think Ruth Brown sued um, for... Copy the arrangement? Yeah, for copyright, um, which wasn't something you could do in those days. Yes. And, and one thing that to keep in mind, historically, this was the norm. In the beginning, you know, before we had recorded music, you had sheet music. So right. songs were popularized through sheet music. That meant they were sung by whoever was around in whatever They town. were popular songs. They weren't popular records. Yeah. And then when they did get records, that ethos of, of everybody trying to do the hit record, it would be a song would sort of be on the charts, and there might be three or four competing versions of that right. song. Right. Well, uh, Maybelline. Um, there, there was some orchestra that recorded a version of that. There, there were uh, three or four covers of it, which I forget who did it, but man, it was it was really. You, you look at the names and you go, really? Did you really think you? But yeah, they they did think they could do it because yeah. why not? It's a good song. Yeah, I mean, in the days of the orchestras, you'd have a song would be done by Count Basie and Lawrence Welk. Right. You know, and everybody just wanted to give the people that were dancing the songs they wanted to dance to. So Well, they heard it on the radio. They they yeah. didn't know who was playing it. They they just knew, "Oh, here's this cool song." Yeah, and we want to hear that. So it's not just cold-hearted cultural appropriation or a malicious effort to crush Laverne Baker. It's simple opportunism. Right. And it's also consistent with what the musical traditions had been over the preceding decades. Right. If, if there's a hot song, we got a good singer, let's see if we can cut a version of it. Exactly. Get the, out there and compete. At the same time, I mean, you know, if you listen, I listened last night to Georgia Gibbs' version of, of uh, Etta James' Dance With Me, Henry, and it's it's missing something. <laughs> oh, yeah. The the, they didn't understand anything but the melody and the lyrics. And they didn't understand that a huge part of what was causing teenagers to buy the record and hence bringing it into the attention of these people uh, making the, the covers uh, was the rhythm and, and was the the way that these studio musicians and backup groups had learned to work together. Um, so, yeah, she wasn't going to get it. She could spend the rest of her life trying to get it and she wasn't going to do it. Yeah, and but one group that had more success with that was the Crew Cuts, who jump in and, and cover Earth Angel, which was done by the Penguins originally, although written by Jesse Belvin. Was he on the Penguins version? Of that? No, and uh, he was he was everywhere, but you know there were actual Penguins. Yeah, and Jesse Belvin is a guy that I've gotten more and more fascinated with as I've dived into your book and and other stuff around this era. I mean, you know, he's a contemporary of this great generation of African American singers. He's just as talented as any of them as far as a vocalist and a songwriter. And, of course, he was cut short by an early death in a car accident. Right, but, but at the same time, even in the 50s, when he was very active, he never really packaged things. I mean, you just don't think of Jesse Belvin as a star. No, because one day he's Jesse Belvin. One, the next day he's half of, what was it? The, uh, the Clicks or something where he did well, all the vocals. He, where he, he's, he's a multi-track fake vocal group and, and there was a Marvin and Jesse yep. which was a, a, a duo thing you know, he, he never I guess you'd say these days solidified his brand yeah he never crystallized on a persona but he's a fun one to dive into and there's some really good records oh, yeah. and Earth Angel's just a great song but like you say it's not one you would think would be coverable it's because the Penguins were really sloppy um, 
And a lot of the charm of the original record comes from that. But the, the crew cuts... And they're heard, Canadian, right? Yeah. They, 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 I think they were called the Canadairs or something originally. Um, they heard it and they went, hmm, this could be cleaned up. And it could be cleaned up. And they did clean it up. I don't think they had quite the hit that the Penguins had because it took them a while to figure out how to do it. But they did a lot of cover Yeah, versions. they did Shaboom also, which I think the Chords did the original yeah, of that. Yeah, and that was on Atlantic too. Yeah, and so, I mean, I'm willing to forgive these guys. To me, they're like music fans. They like what they hear. They're giving sincere performances of their best. Yeah, it's cultural appropriation, but it's also a melting pot. Yeah, exactly. And there were no rules. You know, yeah. you just, you did what you wanted to do, and maybe you'd get lucky. Yeah, the rules were all about the songwriting copyright, and that... Basically, you know, it means the lyrics, the melody, and the harmony, and that's it. The yeah. rhythm's not copyrighted, the arrangement's not copyrightable, and so it's a free-for-all as long as you're paying the royalties to the publisher. Right. As long as everybody gets paid, you know, all's fair. And, and another group that uh, really sprung forefront into my mind, you talk about the platters a little bit in this, and you tell an interesting story. Mercury Records signs the platters because they wanted the penguins. Right. And so... Buck Ram, who was a songwriter and, and a record producer, had been managing the Penguins. So he said, I'll let you have the Penguins if you take this group I've been working with, The Platters. Now, I've heard that album that uh, uh, puts together all the singles The Platters did for King, and they were terrible. They were just terrible. That was before they had a woman in the group. Before Zola Taylor joined. Um, and... I don't know what Buck Ram was thinking. I mean, if you've got four guys that aren't very good, adding a fifth one isn't going to make them any better, necessarily. But it did. Yeah. Something about Zola Taylor made that group just gel. And they became slick, and they became professional, and and all of a sudden they started writing songs that were good, although Buck Ram took credit for them. Um, and they had... A, a Mercury, which was a, a, I guess you'd call it a major independent label uh, in Chicago, going to bat for them. And uh, the Penguins never recorded another hit in their lives. Um, and I've never actually heard any of the Mercury Penguin stuff, although I think I may have some somewhere. Um, but boy, the platters just hit the golden golden ring right there and nobody could reproduce that yeah and it's the platters is sort of like they're almost culturally ubiquitous because their songs they're in movies they're in tv shows they're in advertisements they're still played on the radio but they're so almost low-key i mean you, you don't like you don't see a lot of people that are obsessed with the platters or no. they're big platters fans but this music is in everybody's head and it's an amazing feat. I mean, they put together a really solid body of work. They didn't sound too rhythm and blues. That was part of... I mean, my uncle was a, a Platters fan, and I remember him saying, you can hardly tell they're colored. And that... And, well, you know, yeah. there's nothing wrong with that if yeah. you're trying to stretch out. You know, it's it's like... You know, saying about Elvis, you can hardly tell he's white. Yeah, and, and yet the Platters, if you listen close to their records, it's not like they're layering them with Montavani strings or no. or trying to do you know uh, Gershwin songs. It's or anything. all in the vocal arrangement. Yeah, and, and they they knew how to do that. Yeah, and it's an R and B band backing them up. Yeah. I mean, they, they add yeah. some extra elements, but so yeah, I mean, if you haven't dived into the Platters, I highly recommend that. 
And then um, another group that had to contend with coverage was the Moonglows. We talked about a little bit of They weren't Chicago. They were Cleveland. They were from Cleveland, yeah. recorded Harvey Fuqua was the leader. Was he the lead vocalist or just the lead leader of the group? I honestly don't know who. You know, a lot of times those those groups would, would switch off on who's singing lead depending on what key it's in and how high or low they'd have to go. Yeah, and so they had a big hit with Sincerely that's then jumped on by the McGuire sisters. Right, and they totally had the hit. Uh, I, I've been going through old old billboards um, and uh, reading about the British invasion to get into volume two, and I just, somebody uh, released a single of Sincerely, and the little review in Billboard says, the old McGuire sisters hit his back. Yeah. And and I wonder, I don't know if Phyllis McGuire was sleeping with Sam Giannacana of the Chicago outfit yet, but she later does. And so I wonder, I mean, if you have the backing of Sam Giannacana, you're going to get your records played. Yeah. Uh, who were they recording for, though? I, I don't know. I, it was one of the majors. I, yeah, I guess I it's it Columbia. But no, I would no. think it wouldn't. Well, maybe it would be. I don't know. Um, Mitch Miller was... was such an ironclad presence at Columbia that um, they um, they didn't re- go that far into Covered even mildly region. rock and roll stuff. They Although were, he did make a cash offer for Elvis. Everybody was making a cash offer for Elvis because he was selling ridiculous quantities of records. And so it's, it's another thing about Colonel Parker coming along right around that time and getting Elvis to RCA, he saves him for Mitch Miller. Right. Who had very nearly killed Frank Sinatra's career in the early 50s. Absolutely. And so, and I don't want to bag too much on Mitch Miller because he was an interesting, talented person and he was trying to make music and he made a lot of people happy, but thank God he didn't get his hands on Elvis. Absolutely. But he, he did prevent Columbia from having any major rock and roll action. Any interesting records at this point in, in uh, the story that were coming out of Columbia were coming out of Columbia, Nashville. You know, they were they were coming out of, you know, Marty Robbins and uh, I'm trying to think of who else they, they had. Well, eventually they wound up with cash. But, yeah. yeah, I mean, they were obviously that A&R division was a lot broader thinking. Yeah, and they had John Hammond, too, who would yeah, play beside Bob Dylan. And- well, but, he, but back then Hammond was doing jazz. Uh, Columbia was really strong on their jazz catalog. And um, they were really uh, strong on their crooner catalog, you know, Andy Williams and people yeah. like that. Yeah, I think, was Perry Como on that? No, it was RCA. Yeah, it was RCA. And another thing about RCA is Elvis was able to record in Nashville with Chet Atkins, but also go to New York. He cuts Heartbreak Hotel in New York. Right. They, I mean, they, they were, they had a huge investment, so they were willing to take slight chances. And, and you know, they, they probably figured that their um that the technical expertise was better that better engineers better studios i know um i can't remember exactly when this happened but uh, i i know that they opened a, a major major studio that was capable of recording classical music you know large orchestras 19th century orchestra sized room and you know elvis used that yeah and plus he was there to do the tv shows milton burl exactly Sullivan. yeah and that's a huge part of Elvis going mainstream, but it's not. It was TV had a difficult time accepting Elvis and knowing what to do with Elvis. And 
TV also did very, very little in terms of in terms of the big shows, Steve Allen and uh, Ed Sullivan and, and like that. They, they did very, very little rock and roll. The Dorsey Brothers show. I mean, these are things that where Elvis played. And uh, did he play? He did Steve Allen with Steve the Allen. infamous hound. You know, made him sing to the right. hound dog That's in the tuxedo right. thing, which. You know, some people like Dave Marsh, the rock critic, will just hate on Steve Allen for the scene as some kind of holy enemy of rock and roll. But if you watch the video, it seems like it's mostly just in the spirit of making fun television. Yeah. I mean, which I always thought Steve Allen was better at than Ed Sullivan. Ed Sullivan's like this wooden guy who you know, held his hands really close to his body. There was no no expressivity to him at all. And, and he had a really terrible voice. But he brought the viewers. He brought. He booked the sh- the acts. It was. It was his. He made booking decisions. He didn't have a staff doing that for him. And all he had to do was show up in front of the camera. Yeah, and he's resistant to bring Elvis on. It's not until Steve Allen actually beats him in the rating with Elvis that right. he decides. Yeah, he, he went to the colonel with his tail between his legs. Yeah, and so you know you've got Elvis breaking through with TV, but but a little earlier. Bill Haley has a huge breakthrough via the movies, even though he's not in the movie, but Blackboard Jungle has Rock Around the Clock as the opening music. Right. You're there in the dark theater, and all of a sudden, whack! And, and you know, it was it was the best part of the movie, almost, <laughs> because very little that came after that was, was as interesting, certainly not as riveting. And so kids would go see that, and, and in England... The movie was released, and that was like a completely decisive moment for them. Teddy Boy riots in the yeah, theaters. yeah, T- tearing up the theaters with knives and stuff. You know, it was just it was it was completely insane. And it and it you know, Rock Around the Clock I think had been a B side the year before to Shake Rattle and Roll, his cover of the Joe Turner hit, which was a hit for him. But then after Blackboard Jungle comes out, it's a massive number one in America, right. massive number one in England, and goes on later in the 70s as the theme song for Happy Days. I mean, this. Oh, really? Yeah. I never watched that show. Uh, it was huge <laughs> in the 70s, and, and so, you know, anybody in Gen X probably most associates that song with Happy Days, which, huh. you know, was a nostalgia factory. But, um, so yeah, so you got movies and TV sort of grudgingly breaking rock and roll, and one movie that doesn't feature music but very much has a rock and roll spirit, is uh, James Dean, Rebel Without a Cause. Right. And that was, that was because the, the film centered on three attractive teenagers. And, so, and it blamed the parents for the teenagers going astray, which was, I mean, it seems pretty obvious to us now, but... That was the first time anybody had articulated that. And kids, I imagine after the first time you saw that, you'd want to go back and see it again, not just because of these these attractive movie stars, but because, what? Did they really say that? Wow. Yeah, and from my perspective, you know, being raised by people who read the Dr. Spock books, that was not shocking. I didn't see you know, uh, Rebel Without a Cause until the 80s, and I was 15. It, at that point, it seemed like sort of tired old liberal guilt. Right. But in the 50s, it's this revelation. You have to always understand that, you know, because it, so many things that we accept now were revolutionary back then because they were, these things were just being discovered. 
I mean, the the, the book Rebel Without a Cause um, was a uh, written by a psychoanalyst who um, also had another book called The 50-Minute Hour, which explained that psychoanalysis could cure people of bad traits, which, you know, that's hardly... I mean, these days, psychoanalysis is considered really sort of passe. Yeah, and discredited, but, but then it was... You know, I mean, you therapy is the thing now where, you you know, you treat just the things that are bad, not try to make somebody reinvent their life. Yeah. You know, and, and also Freud's theories have been discredited. But back then, this was all brand new. I mean, it was really some sort of revelation some some sort of opening your your soul to people to say that you had been in analysis or that you were seeing a shrink you know it's like oh yeah. wow that's really that's really courageous of you and 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 you know James Dean has this comet of a career just you know makes three movies while he's alive dies young again not a musical person but very much an apotheosis of cool at the very right, least. Right, exactly. And um, he was, you know, he was a teen idol too, even though you couldn't buy any, well, you could eventually buy records, but they were kind of dumb exploitation records. And, and another guy who has a variation on the James Dean death cult that arose after Dean's tragic car wreck is Johnny Ace. We've talked about him a little bit, but 55 was his year, right. even though he had killed himself at the end of 1954 in a ridiculous backstage accident slash suicide. I mean, nobody... Well, yeah, he, he was showing off for some girl and, and he put his gun, he had a gun all the time and he put the gun in his mouth and pulled the trigger and forgot that there was a bullet in there. Yeah, I mean, just a really dumbass way to kill yourself. Right. And, but it's money in the bank for uh, Don Roby. Well, yeah, and, and he had just, I mean, this happened after Johnny Ace's turn on stage in this Christmas Eve show. And uh, so they'd already heard his brand new record, which he'd never performed before. You know, Pledging My Love, which yeah. is a really a major step forward for a guy who was mostly singing kind of tepid blues stuff that was quite popular because he was good looking and because he had a really good voice. Yeah. But this would have been his decisive moment if he hadn't blown his head off. And like James Dean, black teenage girls had this death cult uh, around him where they erected altars in their homes and stuff like that. And Robbie put together a, a, an album. Was it an EP or a full-length it was, album? It was a 10-inch album. Yeah, that, that was what how he saved himself uh well, he was a pretty cold individual. He he yeah. just he just took most of he took the best of the Johnny Ace records and, and did the Johnny Ace Memorial album, and that was one of the first albums to sell like crazy uh, with a black audience. Yeah, and it's a really good record. I've like you say, listening to a longer compilation of Johnny Ace, it gets pretty wearisome. But the stuff on the Johnny Ace Memorial album that's about. A, a real that, nice amount of that's Johnny, Johnny Ace. Ace. That's yeah. that's what you need. Yeah, and it shows you why he was an accepted member of the Beale Streeters. Yeah, with BB King and Bobby Blue Bland, and Roscoe Gordon, all those guys. Yeah, yeah. and so it, it, and like you say, "Pledging My Love" is a major leap forward musically for him, by far his best song. And it is, you know, you always have these what could have been and where would he have gone from there. But 
you know, you put a twenty two caliber pistol in your mouth and pull the trigger, and that's that's the end of that. That's where you go. Yeah. So, but um, another album that that sold some units. Bill Haley did some ten inch EPs. Yeah. As well, and and they're, they're albums. They're not EPs. They have like. Well, he does an EP that then they expand to an album, add a couple more tracks. Right. Rock Around the Clock is a full album, but those did those sell, or were those disappointments? I don't think. The thing is, if you listen to the Rock Around the Clock album, there isn't that much good material on it. Yeah. He he sort of cobbled together, you know, country and western stuff, up tempo country stuff. The, and he, he also wrote a few songs. But then they're doing stuff like trying to rock up The Saints Go Marching In. Right. Because and, and he, he, he had not much imagination. And to be fair to him, this thing came on him really, really fast. Yeah. So with Bill Haley, I, I went back after we talked about him last week and listened to it again. And it, there's probably 30 minutes of solid Bill Haley right. out there. And, and he's just not that great a vocalist. Wasn't a great songwriter, but he's important historically. He was in the right place. He didn't look right good time. either. He was 30 no. years old. He was overweight. And he had a ridiculous hairstyle. To distract that, from his glass eye. That's why know. he did that. <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah. It was either a glass eye or a dead eye, but he was blind in one eye. And, ah. and, and in addition to being moon-faced and a little bit overweight and balding, so, you know, the spit curl had a purpose, but... Uh, you know, but um, speaking of covers, the arch villain of the cultural appropriation white guy doing covers and stealing the thunder is Pat Boone, who covers Fats Domino. Fats Domino has this big breakthrough, ain't that a shame? Breaks in the mass audience, boom, Pat Boone's there with a the cover. Little Richard puts his magic together, and we've talked about this before with Tutti Fruity, and boom, Pat Boone's there with a the cover. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, a- a- as we've said, this is this is business. Yeah. Um, and there probably were, well, there probably was the thought that a lot of parents would not welcome records by these black people into their homes. And by taking sort of the edge off of it and being a handsome young white guy, Pat Boone could get over. And he did, to some extent. But the important thing to remember about Pat Boone is, try as he might, after after um, Ain't That a Shame, none of his records eclipse the originals. None of them. So, yeah, there's a limited ceiling to that. And, and I've listened, I've dived into Pat Boone a little bit. I mean, the Beatles cover a Pat Boone song that was a Pat Boone original. Well, they performed it live. It was a Paul, I can't, I'll have to look back at that Mark Lewison book, but... Paul McCartney had picked out a Pat Boone track, you know, and uh, and <laughs> of course, it but would it's be actually Paul. a fairly rocking one. But Pat Boone was kind of like influenced by Perry Como and being Crosby, and being Crosby swung. I mean, that was the thing yeah. about being Crosby. Well, and Pat Boone was the rising pop hope of Nashville back then. He he was married to Red Foley's daughter. Red Foley had been having hits since the mid '30s, and um, there he was, you know, just um, this young kid from Texas who had shown up, good voice, good looks, um, had a certain amount of, of dress sense. He popularized white buck shoes, huh. which what was, I remember, you know, when I was in school, you know, I, I seeing teenagers wearing these, and that meant they were cool. <laughs> and so, yeah, with Pat Boone, I mean, he gets a lot of hate. Some of it's deserved. 
but there's a little bit of value there, and he and he did bring this music into a lot of homes that it right. might not have gotten into otherwise. But I want to talk about New Orleans because that town is cooking. Right yeah, now. with Fat Domino arguably reaching its peak with Fat Domino and Dave Bartholomew with a great team. Little Richard, who's not a New Orleanian but records his greatest stuff in New Orleans with New Orleans musicians right. like Earl Palmer on drums. And then, you know, you got other guys that are like Smiley Lewis and Yui Smith. I mean, there's just a whole bubbling scene there. Right, Aaron exactly. Neville makes us some of his first records that year. No, the Neville brothers, the Hawkettes. Yeah. So that was were the there, whole... you know, And they recorded Mardi Gras Mambo, which was the theme song of the Mardi Gras until uh, Professor Longhair recorded his theme song for the Mardi Gras. Yeah. And so... You didn't. You only mentioned Aaron Neville about in the Hawkettes, but that that band didn't. St that group didn't stay together. No, I mean the Neville brothers were always at each other's throats right up until the end. Yeah, a and um, this is the theme we'll see with rock and roll brother groups. We've already talked about it with Dorsey Burnett, right? The Burnett, Johnny Burnett, and Dorsey Burnett, and again, <laughs> the Neville brothers, not so. You know, and also, also they didn't want to be known as the Hawkettes. And and some of them also played instruments, so they were part of that pool of, of studio musicians. Yeah, and and um, but then you got Smiley Lewis, who has a hit with uh, "Keep." Is it? Can you hear me knocking or keep on knocking? Um, I hear you knocking. I hear you knocking. And this is a guy like I've listened to some comps of his. Solid material, sort of imitates the Fat Domino style. Like he doesn't start out with that same style. Right. Well, he was a guitarist. So instead of a piano player. Yeah, but he has Huey Smith, is that right, playing piano? Yeah, he, well, Huey Smith was everywhere. He would have yeah. been on Little Richard's record if he hadn't left the session. Yeah, if Little Richard, as Huey said, Little Richard was suddenly a pianist right. <laughs> on, on <laughs> Duty Fruity. But with Smiley Lewis, you're like, why wasn't this guy a bigger star? I'm not sure. I, I don't know very much about him, and, and I think that points to something. I, he died fairly young. I think he may have had an alcohol problem, which was certainly would have made him unique among uh, New Orleans musicians. I, I'm not entirely yeah. sure what and, the deal and was. And this is one thing as I've gotten older, you know, when I was a young kid and you're like, you sort of have this view of, wow, they're talented, therefore they're famous, you know, and you see it as a one-to-one -one relationship. And then you discover that there are some really talented performers who maybe maybe even had a great career of records, but somehow didn't click. And then you start thinking, oh, the world's so unfair and these talents are squandered. Then you look back into the story a little bit more. And so often the people that succeed are people like Fat Domino, who are sober, who show up for work, who maintain good relationships. And then the people that don't last or don't make it that big are gun nuts like Johnny Ace or, right. you know, somebody like Little Willie John, who's just a rolling disaster. Um, and no. You know, I mean, gambler, fighter, fornicator, drunkard, just yeah, amazingly fun to read about. Little Willie John is, is another... I, have you read the book that... Fever? The, yeah, that yeah. The Sue Whittle did, yeah. Yeah, his family. I was really touched by that because his... You know, if you read like the biographies of Sam Cooke or Ray Charles or James Brown, Little Willie John pops up as this figure that's not quite a villain, but sort of a clownish figure and definitely trouble on the bus. Yeah. And I was touched that the, the, the John family apparently commissioned this book to sort of defend his legacy and tell his side of the story. And there is a side to his story. He's an incredibly right. gifted singer. Right. Possibly the most gifted. Out, you know, that generation, that's one thing that's fascinating me lately. You have this one generation of African-American singers with Sam Cooke, Ray Charles, James Brown, 
Clyde McFadden, Little Willie John, Jackie Wilson. I mean, these incredible talents. And what's the thing that's in common with them? The period of time when they were born. Their the age. church. They all, well, yeah, they all come out of the church. That's that that's, uh, Because that's a place where you could, if you didn't play an instrument, but had a, a vocal instrument, you could improve it. And you got instant feedback, too. Yeah. From from the people in the congregation. And and it sure shows. And, and, you know, when you hear their accounts, James Brown, for example, recorded a tribute album to Little Willie John after right. John died in prison in the late 60s, tragically. Um, but they all speak of John with the utmost respect. And if you listen to his records, you can tell this guy was an incredibly gifted singer. Right. And could bring the emotion. I mean, he had all the technique and supposedly live... Nobody wanted to follow him. Right. And, and I mean, and, you know, when you're talking about Jackie Wilson or James Brown not wanting to follow you, you've got to be <laughs> something else. Right. And uh, and so in this period, Little Willie John really clicks, though. And, and you talk about him as somebody who's appealing to a more sophisticated audience. Well, he did supper or, clubs as well as R&B package tours. When he had a hit, he'd do the, the package tours. When he didn't, you know, he'd, he'd be in Chicago or Detroit you know, with a week-long residency at a supper club singing jazz standards and his hits. Yeah, and, and stuff like Fever that then is covered by Peggy Lee right? in, in a big way. But it's just an incredible song. And and uh, the song, it's not called Grits Ain't Groceries, but that's the hook. Uh, just another great one. All and, Around the World. Yeah, All yeah. Around the World. And the Beatles, of course, cover, or didn't release it, but co- recorded a cover of Leave My Kitten Alone right. by him. And so if you haven't checked out Little Willie John... Definitely highly recommended. And the book Fever is interesting, although I felt like uh, Garalnik's book about Sam Cooke, and I can't remember the title of it, tells the Little Willie John. That was where I really got fascinated with Little Willie John, because they tell a story about his sister coming on the Chitlin circuit. And, Mabel John. Yeah. A great, a great, great talent. And they wanted, she was very young and very innocent, and they wanted to chaperone her carefully. And the way they did it was basically wherever her brother was, keep her away from because wherever Little Willie John was, there was the crap game, there was the fist fight, uh, you know. Yeah, yeah, that's very true. Uh, she uh, she recorded a, a song I used to play on my radio show in in Germany a lot. Uh, uh, don't don't you hit me no more. Which, Ouch. Which is just an amazing. And I asked her about it uh, at the Ponderosa Stomp two years ago. And she told me the story how it got how it got written. But anyway, that doesn't fit in. Yeah, that's here. a little outside of our narrative, but well worth it. And this whole thing, I mean, the whole book, this is all about rabbit trails and rabbit holes and oh, exploring yeah. this stuff and learning more. There's no bottom to it, and there's no right or wrong. And one guy that's not in, your, in the index of your book that I want to pick on you about is Roy Hamilton, who was one of Elvis's favorite singers, and. Uh, you know, had a big hit with Rodgers and Hammerstein's You'll Never Walk Alone, which inspires the Jerry and the Pacemaker version, which is now the National Anthem of Liverpool. Right. And, uh, you know, Elvis covered one of his songs early on. And and what is it that, I mean, why is Roy Hamilton left out of your history? Uh, I've just never been able to hear him. And, and I, I guess he sold records, but I've never thought of him as being part of the rock and roll rhythm and blues narrative. Yeah. Um, he's a little too soft around the edges. Uh, also, he recorded for Columbia, not Columbia itself, but Epic. And um, I never heard any of his hits that I remembered. I mean, I probably did hear some of his hits. He's got at least one song on that Bear Family compilation that I've sung the praises of, Blow in the Fuse. It's a really good rocker. And then... 
now you can get it's easy to get you know his full albums on Spotify and Google Play etc and yeah a lot of it is kind of pop schmaltzy a little right. bit but he does something to You'll Never Walk Alone. Like, if you listen to the original stage production version of that or Frank Sinatra's version from the early 60s, it's a very different take. Roy Hamilton sort of adds a soul element to it that is then present in the covers. And, of course, he did Unchained Melody that the Righteous Brothers covered. Right. And but but so. once again, you know, it's a, I don't remember hearing any of those versions. Huh. Um, and I, he did sell enough records that I'm sure I... I heard them. I just didn't remember hearing them. Yeah, so anyway, it's just, there's a bottomless pit, and you can argue endlessly about this. Oh, yeah, there's just plenty of people I left out. Uh, Ronnie Hawkins. Yeah, the great, I mean, the near great Ronnie Hawkins. Yeah. Who's Who uh, we talked about in another episode, his, his version of Who Do You Love with Robbie Robertson and the early band. But I want to talk about Sun Records a little bit more, and Carl Perkins, who's, you know, Elvis is outgrowing Sun, and I think it wasn't just business-wise, but also aesthetically, because, you know, if you read about the Heartbreak Hotel sessions in New York, Elvis is basically acting as a producer. I mean, he's running right. the show there, and so there's this creative growth going on, and Sam Phillips is a very imposing creative presence, and it was probably time for Elvis to go out on his own, but Sam has a lot of work still to do, and Carl Perkins is like the second great performer right. great white performer that comes through his door and and uh, it took him a while to actually get what Perkins was after just like with Elvis it took him a little while right to... except except that he event he he's he's got Perkins into the fold pretty quickly and then he was I guess overwhelmed by Elvis uh, business and so when he started recording um Perkins, he he recorded him as a country performer. He would not let him do this other stuff. And then uh, he's out on tour with Cash, and, and Cash says, oh, you ought, you ought to write a song about blue suede shoes. Which is the weirdest thing to suggest. And Cash yet, is not a normal human being. No. There's a, have you seen the Carter Family Johnny Cash documentary that came out no. a couple years ago? Several people who knew Johnny Cash were related to him talk about him as almost a seer. That's yeah. somebody who could see through people and, and a real visionary wherever he went. Yeah. And and just had extra levels of insight. And I mean, it was a genius suggestion to Carl Perkins. Well, was, and Carl Perkins ha hadn't, he had no idea what he was talking about. I should write a song about shoes. And then there's this moment at, at a dance that the Perkins brothers are playing where um, it's in between songs and he hears this voice coming from the audience. It's like, don't step on my shoes. And this girl saying, oh, I'm sorry. And so when they start playing again, Perkins looks down and he sees this guy's got blue suede shoes. He goes, well, damn, I guess Cash was onto something. And it, it grabs a hold of him. It won't let go. And that night he can't sleep. So he's up all night writing the lyrics of, of blue suede shoes on, on a potato sack <laughs> in the kitchen. That's classic. And uh, his... Uh, the next morning, he, he actually did get a little bit of sleep, and, and he wakes up and goes, "Was that? Did that actually work?" And so he goes out there, he finds a potato sack, and picks up his guitar, and, and uh, you know, not not plugged in, he's playing, and his wife wakes up to make breakfast. She goes, "Carl, I like that," and everybody else did too. He takes yeah. it to Sam Phillips, and it's 
one of the first records to hit this trifecta of number one on the pop charts, number one on the R&B charts, number one on the country charts. Right. A very unique historical moment. Yeah, there are not many other records that have done that. <clears throat> and then, tragically, he has a car wreck in New right. York. Right, just as he's about ready to go up, he's on his way to, um, uh, to the Perry Como show and stops off in Virginia where a promoter shows him this this kid that he's he's signed up and he wants to get a record deal with Eugene Vincent Craddock and uh, Carl goes well that's that's interesting and um, then they get back in the car and they're driving the the driver falls asleep and there's this horrendous wreck one of the Perkins brothers breaks his neck Carl is all messed up in the hospital. Nearly bleeds to death. Yeah, yeah. His, uh, his drummer, I think, is the one who got him out of a, a puddle. He was going to aspirate water until he died. And uh, so he's he misses his opportunity. And um, meanwhile, his record is a hit, and then Elvis records it. Yeah, and originally it's an album track, but it's Elvis doing Blue Suede Shoes. He right. does it on TV. It's got a life of its own. Carl's not on the road. And Carl Perkins, I mean, he continues to make some more great records, but he never recovers that momentum to his yeah, career. Yeah, and he was so philosophical about it. He says, let's face it, I was married, I had a couple of kids, you know, I wasn't going to be a rock and roll star, not for very long. Yeah, and uh, and he went on, to, you know, Johnny Cash took him in and... Carl Perkins opened with, for Johnny Cash for years and years. So he had right. a great career covered by the Beatles, friends with the Beatles. Uh, so, you know, you can't really... Oh, poor and Carl a phenomenal Perkins. guitar player. Oh, yeah. Which, I George mean, I, Harrison's favorite guitar player. Yeah, you see him perform, and, and it's scary uh, how, how fluent he was. I think that's because he developed that style real early on, and he never let it go, and he, he figured out ways to use it with all kinds of material. Yeah, and so it's also interesting that he meets the future Gene Vincent, right. who's going to have a really terrible history with vehicle accidents. Had he already had his motorcycle accident? He had his motorcycle accident while he was in the Navy, Yeah, and he mustered out and was playing around the clubs there with this band of other lowlifes. The Blue Caps. The Blue Caps. Including a great guitar player, Cliff Gallup. Yeah. I mean, talk about your forgotten uh, rock and roll star. Gene Vincent was just an absolute... He was, as I say in the book, he was everything that your parents assumed Elvis was. Yeah. Low-life hillbilly, uh, pill-popping, drinking, violent... You know, just really awful, awful guy. George Harrison, George Harrison has a story about when they play when the Beatles played with Vincent in Hamburg, and he's hanging out with Gene Vincent. And next thing he knows, there's a knife, and they're going to see to somebody's apartment to try to find Gene's gun, wife, a gun, and, which which was even worse. Yeah. Where in the hell do you get a gun in Germany? And uh, and George Harrison very quickly was like, "Well, <laughs> I'll see you, pal," you know, and backs away from this. So yeah, and then of course Vincent is in the car with Eddie Cochran when he dies, right, in England in 1960, but. Eddie Cochran comes in the story in this chapter two as part of his role in The Girl Can't Help It, which is the great rock and roll movie. It is. It is. Uh, Nobody ever did anything similar to that. I think it was because the rock and roll movies that followed were all trying to chase the fad, whereas the, The Girl Can't Help It was driven by its plot. And because this 
PR guy who's supposed to turn Jane Mansfield into a recording star um, has to learn uh, the music business, you know, learn what the kids are into these days. So he's always going to clubs and just happens to run into little Richard performing brilliantly, Fats Domino performing brilliantly. And, and at one point, his his housekeeper is is watching television uh, as, as she's cleaning his house and Eddie Cochran comes on and she goes, Bazooty! He says, middle-aged black woman. She goes, oh, come here! She grabs the guy and drags him over and, you know, he's getting an education. So are we. Yeah, and, and the, <laughs> Frank Tashlin, the director, had been a Warner Brothers cartoonist and the visuals on that movie are brilliant. Absolutely, yeah. The cinematography is great. Tashlin went on to become very, very successful directing Jerry Lewis. Yeah. And, and and so it's a great, great movie. And Eddie Cochran is another one of these characters who dies extremely young, but is incredibly gifted. He's bouncing around Hollywood playing session gigs in L.A., but he puts together, he's sort of a self-created thing. I mean, he plays almost all the instruments on several of his records. Yeah, yeah. Summertime Blues and... and um... 20 Flight 20 Rock. 20 Flight Rock, which is the, the one that's in the movie. Yeah, and that's also the song that Paul McCartney knew all the lyrics to. And right, that you impressed John, uh, Lennon. John Lennon. That's true. Yeah, and another group I want to mention, we probably need to wrap the show up, but the Dell Vikings are this integrated vocal group uh, met on an Air Force base. Right, in Connecticut. Yeah, and they have this hit with Come Go With Me, which is the song John Lennon's singing when he makes a big impression on Paul McCartney. Right. Because he didn't know the lyrics and he made up his own. Right. But, <clears throat> but I think the idea, the Dell Vikings, I mean, this is a big deal to have an integrated vocal harmony group. Right. That's a hit. It's true. And and it didn't last long either because they broke up into two Dell Vikings, one of whom had two L's in their name. And... Uh, the the they they hit it so big they got gigantic recording contract and, and it killed them yeah you know but yes they had made that that statement because there hadn't been any white vocal groups to speak of yep. and at so, that point and, and that there were white guys who were doing this that that is as much of a statement as Elvis you know covering blues records were they before did they predate the crew cuts and their covers of Shaboom Shaboom and Oh, the Del Vikings? Yeah. Are they no, I, the, I think they, they just came along, uh, well, at about the same time. I, I would really have to go look at the books to uh, But they're better than out. the crew cuts. If you well, listen. They, they were better than yeah. the crew cuts, and they also didn't sound like necessarily a white group. Yeah. And so I think that's a logical point to wrap up the show for this. We didn't get as much into 1956 as I want to. And we've got some big stories to tell because James Brown is coming next. Right. And that is a big, big story. That was our conversation about 1955 and a little bit of 1956. Next time we'll be back with our conversation about the miracle year of 1957, a year when rock and roll was hitting on all cylinders, and a sometimes drag queen from Macon, Georgia, went to New Orleans and emerged with a series of hits so big and a persona so outrageous, he nearly dethroned Elvis Presley. As always, check out our website, letitrollpodcast.com, for more information and links to our playlists on Spotify, YouTube, and other places where you can hear and see what we've been talking about. We'll see you next week at Let It Roll.
If you're enjoying the show and you want to learn more about the history of rock and roll, buy Ed's book, The History of Rock and Roll, Volume 1, 1920 to 1963, published by Flatiron Books, available on Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, and anywhere fine books are sold. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.